Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher, and I have a Craig Fisher on as well to talk preterism. Maybe maybe not his favorite subject, but it has something to do with dispensationalism, which is perhaps. <laughs> so, you know, I want to say hi to everyone. Hello, everybody. This is what Chris is going to look like in 30 years. Uh, yes, pro pro probably that that is that is actually accurate. And so we have tonight. This is a bourbon stream, so I, I got my bourbon here, and uh, we're going to watch this. <clears throat> Don K. Preston debates Jason Wallace, and this Jason Wallace doesn't seem to have any affiliation or relationship to Dan Wallace, like an author of these early Genesis books. Uh, he do also doesn't seem to have the scholastic aptitude from what I was kind of watching of his. So his one is probably not as good as this Don Preston guy, which is apparently this guy that we're looking at right now. And um, he's all over the place. And so he, his is going to be a pretty lively presentation. I was, I was watching through it and watching some of his jumps this 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 uh, video was given to me as a recommendation i don't i don't actually know if the recommendation was hey watch this because this is a great thing to prove preterism or hey watch this because this is a great thing to disprove preterism i don't know in which fashion it was recommended but it was in one one of those fashions recommended to me so preterism craig you know what that is i, I bet you do yes yes i they think that the events that are are mentioned in eschatology have already occurred or they're happening right now. Right. And so typically they'll point to 70 AD as a key catalyst moment to fulfill various prophecies of Jesus. And as this guy says, uh, Daniel 12, he sees 70 AD as one of those events. And so we'll listen to, to his arguments. He'll, he'll kind of make them. Um, I'm just going to hit play. So, uh, thank you for, for everyone for being here. I want to tell you just a little bit about why I'm here. Uh, I initially heard about Sean McCraney because someone told me he had been talking about me on TV. I have no earthly idea what he was talking about or what he was saying about me, but uh, we began to correspond and he then invited me to come to Salt Lake City to simply share my understanding with you. I, I got to fast here. forward just a little bit. The proposition technically reads, the Bible teaches that the second coming of Christ occurred at the time of the, the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Now, everyone will agree with me, I'm pretty sure, that the, that the resurrection occurs at the same time as the second coming of Christ. They are concurrent events. Now, I want to focus on something here. I want you to catch the pun. All right. So is that something that uh, you affirm uh, <laughs> that the, okay. So no, just the, uh, he said that everyone affirms that the resurrection happens at the second coming of Christ. I, I would say that that's the general understanding of the biblical authors. That's the <clears throat> first Corinthians 15 understanding where Christ comes back and everybody gets their new body. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think that's that's not in contention, and he's he's accurate there, and but he ties it to 70 A.D., which is under contention. Of this, this debate is about timing. It's not about nature. 
It is about the timing of the resurrection and the timing of the second coming. There's not a word in either proposition about the nature of the body of Jesus. So this 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 is really a weird point that he started making. I was like, okay, where is he going to go with this? That this is, is not a debate about the body of Jesus, whether Jesus is going to come back bodily or spiritually. I was like, oh, no, this is going to be one of the key parts of his argument for arguing that Jesus's prophecies were fulfilled, that Jesus has come back in spirit, but not in body. And uh, I think that I think that is actually where he goes with this. Uh, don't quote me on that. There's not an, uh, not one word in either proposition that says Jesus will come in a body of flesh. The propositions both read wh about when Jesus would come. If yeah, and, and absolutely, I'd affirm that every single person preaching the second coming was thinking of a bodily return. Even when Paul's talking about spiritual bodies in 1 Corinthians 15, that's what he means. They're, they're bodies. They're not disembodied, ethereal substances that have no tangibility. They're spiritual bodies. This, this is the idea that Jesus would return and reign on earth. And live on earth. I, I don't think this preterism take of uh, Don Preston. I don't think, I don't think he affirms that understanding. So. Uh, I I don't understand it. it <clears throat> the big event that's going to happen when Christ returns is our new bodies and the dead being raised. That that's the evidence for First Corinthians fifteen and. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about people who have faith in vain because of a false understanding of the resurrection. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes with that. Yeah, well, I thought the big event when, when uh, Christ returns was the angels would round up the wicked <clears throat> and slay them, and the righteous would be round up and blessed. And so um, I don't think he actually addresses that. He might address that somewhere here, but... I, th I thought that was the key moment of the second coming is this cosmic justice. But I, I don't think he covers this aspect. Therefore, I demonstrate that Scripture posits places the resurrection in AD 70. My proposition is therefore established, and Jason's proposition is, as a result, falsified. No matter. Uh, he's arguing that the resurrection happened in 70 AD. That's his, that's his proposition. Or what else might be said? Would you please pay attention to that statement? Now, my affirmative will be centered on Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, which reads, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting condemnation. Prior to tonight, I asked Jason if he believed that Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 is a prediction of the resurrection at the end of the current Christian age. He responded, one word, yes. I appreciate his succinct answer. He gave no qualifications to that. So, the Yeah, there, there might be some weasel words in the question, but I would think that normal people would just say yes. I, I, don't, I don't see anyone disputing that. Great question, therefore, is, is Daniel a prediction of the end of the Christian age, or does Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, support my proposition let's read the text so you always have to watch for framing people are trying to pull you into 
how they frame understandings, how they how they frame the wor- world. And so a lot of times their questions will be fr- frame loaded. Like this, this is how I see the world. So I'm going to ask the question in this very specific way that if you affirm or deny it, you're kind of accepting the underlying underlying framing of my question. Whereas if you actually probed it a little bit, there'd probably be some nuance in which there's disagreement on what the question even means to each individual. Together, I forgot my glasses, so I'll do the best that I can. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there should be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel. (laughs) James writes, if Christ has already returned, we got kind of a bad deal. Yeah, I think so. Looked, and there stood two others, one on this riverbank and the other on that riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half time. Now, please pay very careful attention. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all, not some, not most, not a little bit, all of these things shall be fulfilled. Let's do a quick analysis, therefore, of Daniel chapter... All right, so any comment on what he said there? I don't know how he's going to get there because those things in Daniel 12 have not happened and did not happen in AD 70s. Right. So here's his argument. And so you heard it in his last sentence. He said, these things will happen. And then he he put emphasis on will. And so his, his entire argument is because the Bible said these things will happen, then they did happen. His entire argument falls apart if... There's a possibility that these things were said that they will happen and then did not materialize, then failed to happen. His entire argument falls apart. So this is what I do see preterism as, as it's some sort of uh, mechanism and it's very contrived. I, I want to, in my life, stay away from contrived mechanisms. It's a It seems like a contrived mechanism to try to ensure that prophecy is always fulfilled you see all these failed prophecies jesus says uh you guys won't go through the cities of israel before these things happen this generation uh shall not pass away um they're talking about within the the lifetime of the hearers They're, they're writing to current churches telling them signs of the end times all these prophecies about everything happening in their lifetimes and so people read this and they read the bible and they have this understanding that if it's said as a prophecy, it must come to pass. 
And now they're left with the historical data. And now, now they need to try to merge the two to say, uh, here's our historical data of things that happened. And here's the prophecies. We must make them fit. It can't be that Nebuchadnezzar never took Egypt as he has prophesied to do. You have to manufacture something, some way in which his prophecy of taking Egypt came true. It can't be that Nebuchadnezzar never got his wages from Tyre, took Tyre. You have to manufacture excuses of why that prophecy means something else than the historical record and the biblical historical record actually records. And so it's, it's a way to salvage prophecy to make that prophecy come true. And it's like, what's, what's our tolerance for contrived prophecy fulfillment? And to what extent we have this contrived prophecy fulfillment, we should probably try to be consistent with uh, allowances on the extent that prophecy can be fulfilled. Typically, Typically, you're not going to see that in people. They want very contrived ways the prophecy is fulfilled in certain circumstances and then in, insist very woodenly that uh, other prophecy, uh, you know, must must be fulfilled in certain ways. They, they don't they don't have the same standards. It's a it's a double standard. And it really depends on whether or not it the evidence looks like the prophecy didn't fulfill. You know, when, when you go to the prophecy of weeks, 70 times 7, and even, and it said after 69 weeks, and then it talks about the Messiah, the Prince will come. If that's the birth of Christ, and there's one week left in that prophecy, that's 49. So if the birth of Christ was in B.C. 5 or even 0, that gets you to 45 to 49 A.D., it doesn't give you, get you to 80 when the temple was destroyed. So if you're just using a, if you don't think that that last week is going to be fulfilled in the future and you just stab it on the end of the 69 weeks, 80, 80 doesn't work at all. Yeah, so we'll hear, hear how he ties Daniel into his prophecy fulfillment. For 12. This is the resurrection at the end of the age. Resurrection, verse 2, the end of the age, verse 3. And it would occur, verse 7, quote, when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, unquote. The question naturally needs to be answered, who are Daniel's holy people? In order for Daniel chapter 12 to be, to be predictive of the resurrection at the end of the Christian age, Daniel's holy people must be the church. That will not work. So one very contrived thing about preterism is this idea that the Romans were acting as agents of God and fulfilling his, his prophecies and the destruction of the temple. Whereas when I read the Bible, it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case at all. God's going to bring armies of angels to do his bidding. It's not going to be this immoral pagan nation that subjugates Israel and then puts them back under the yoke of bondage that they were in before that very event happened. They were in, in Roman bondage before and then in Roman bondage afterwards. Uh, that's that's not that's not what I think that any of these people have in mind when, when they're talking about these events being fulfilled. The power of the holy people, if the resurrection of Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, occurs at the end of the Christian age, 
must be the destruction of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all of those who believe, Romans chapter 116. Now, I want you to notice, the kingdom of Christ has no end, Daniel 7. The gospel, which is the power of the body of Christ, again, Romans 116, will never be destroyed. Jesus himself affirmed that. Daniel's holy people was none other than Old Testament Israel and her power and Israel's only power. The only power she ever possessed was her covenant relationship with the Lord. Now, what that means is that the resurrection would be when Israel and when her covenant relationship with Yahweh was completely shattered. The resurrection would occur when Israel's covenant relationship with God was terminated. That was in AD 70. Now, all right, any comments on that? Yeah, I, <clears throat> Paul says that Israel was put aside in Romans 11. If Paul wrote the gospel in, of Romans in 55 AD or whatever, it would have been put aside then and not in AD 70. Right. I don't think Daniel at all is talking about the same thing Paul is. Daniel doesn't have in mind this grafting in of Gentiles and uh, corporate Israel suffering. God actually says, or through Paul in Romans, that the reason he's cutting off Israel and grafting in the Gentiles is to make Israel jealous. It, it, it's a different different idea than in Daniel 12. Daniel 12 seems to be talking about the current corrupt power structure of Israel being replaced. And there's the mystery in Ephesians 3. You know, that wasn't in Daniel 12. By definition, it was a mystery that wasn't. So his mixing up Romans and Daniel, it, it doesn't, I, I don't see any links. Yeah, so I, I do think Paul draws on Daniel quite a bit for end time eschatological type events. But mixing that with his teaching on Jewish Gentile equality is probably a big mistake. I don't think Daniel had any of that stuff in mind. Daniel 12, as virtually all scholars agree, both historically and in modern scholarship, is paradigmatic for the New Testament teaching on the resurrection. It is the source of the, quote, end of the age, unquote, resurrection doctrine found in the New Testament. It is the source of the doctrine of the resurrection of the just and of the unjust, unquote. When Paul said that he preached nothing other than what was found in Moses and the prophets, and he believed that there was about to be, literal rendering of Acts 24, verse 14, there was about to be the resurrection of the just and the unjust, the only text in the entirety of the Old Testament, the source of Paul's resurrection doctrine, that specifically mentions the resurrection of the just and the unjust was Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2. And I want to suggest to you that a comparison of Daniel with New Testament text confirms how paradigmatic, how controlling and determinative Daniel 12 is for the doctrine of the second coming of Christ and the doctrine of the resurrection. So let's begin to examine Daniel 12 with the New Testament teaching on the coming of Christ and the resurrection. I want you to notice the correlation between Daniel 12 and Matthew chapter 13. Yeah, it is interesting. There is... Uh... 
there's a paper that I've downloaded like 20 different times because it's so useful. It's about all the callbacks in the book of Revelation to Old Testament apocalyptic ideas. And it's just like every single like passage pulls back to something else and draws on it. And so you do see this reoccurring theme of New Testament using these Old Testament type ideas. And so I, I don't think he's wrong here. Do you have any comment? Of course, we think that the body of Christ is separate from uh, <clears throat> the people that Jesus, that the the uh, the disciples and Jesus' ministry and Jesus is the fulfillment. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to establish the law. And he would go back to all these Old Testament prophecies, and I'm I'm thinking he's referring to in Matthew 13 to Daniel 12, but I don't know what this helps him establish. Uh, I if I, it's probably his attempt to establish his biblical credibility with the audience. If you rattle off a lot of verses and a lot of trivia type knowledge, like if you're watching James White and he's talking about a verse, then he'll just sidetrack and just start talking about the, a Greek word used somewhere that's not relevant to his overall point, basically like trying to show off like, oh man, I, I know a little bit of Greek here, so if I'm good at this one point, I'm good at this other. And so this seems to be that type of thing where where you're kind of kind of grandstanding with with evidence and then you smuggle in your assumptions. Okay, so when I was watching this earlier, uh, he'll do this all the time. And he'll say, this says this, and this says this. So this plus this equals this. Oh, yeah, and that's 70 AD. It's like, what? Where did that claim come from? Uh, you, you didn't prove that final claim, and some of those links were a little uh, tenuous. They, they, they don't they don't quite follow. Maybe, maybe but just that, that last one, jumping to 70 AD, that was just out there. There's nothing. It, that's just a claim. In Daniel chapter 12, we have the resurrection doctrine, just as in Matthew chapter 13, we have the doctrine of the harvest. In Matthew or Daniel, it, it's the time of the judgment, judgment and the separation between the just and the unjust, just as in Matthew chapter 13, the separation between the wheat and the tares. It is the judgment of life and condemnation versus, again, the wheat and tares. Daniel chapter 12, it would be when the righteous would shine forth. Now, please catch. Yeah, so that's, it's interesting in the parable of uh, the wheat and the tares, or like when Jesus is talking, like uh, one will remain and one will be taken. The one that's being taken is the one who's going to be executed for being evil. This is the reoccurring idea that when these things happen, there's going to be a global judgment by which the angels round up the wicked and kill them and then bless the righteous which I don't see happening in any preteristic models. And some that I've heard of try to say, oh, that's still future from, from now. It's like uh, these things were kind of fulfilled here, but then this global judgment that's going to be future still. That, that, wa that wasn't their idea when they're, they're preaching it originally. It wasn't Paul's idea. It wasn't Jesus's idea. It wasn't any of the disciples' idea. The second coming is this apocalyptic event will sweep the world, judge the wicked, bless the righteous. Yes. In, in, in AD 70, Rome surrounded Jerusalem. They killed everybody. They, When they broke into Jerusalem, 
they they went into the sewers and grabbed the people who were in the sewers and and they killed him and that it was a destruction of everybody and and the righteous there might have been a few people left over that were in the surrounding areas that were initially uh, captured before the siege of Jerusalem that were Jews. And, and those people, we have their writings. They were very Jewish. And they, we have the Mishnah. We have the writings of these people describing what happened after Jerusalem was conquered. They're not Christians. They believe in the Torah. They're, they're, not, they're not the righteous that we would consider the righteous as Christians. They they were Hasidic. They, they considered themselves the righteous, but not it wouldn't be righteousness as defined in the New Testament. So how could the righteous be left over and only the guilt? Everyone was killed, whether they were good guys or bad guys. <laughs> I don't know how he gets some kind of um, <clears throat> analogy between AD 70 and, and, and the judgment. The Son of Man sends out his angels and gathers out his kingdom, all that offend and practice and cast them in the furnace of fire. And the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Where was the kingdom of their father after AD 70? Certainly not on earth. Yeah, it's definitely probable that James, the brother of Jesus, died in that 70 A.D. event, along with all the rest of the Christian councils that were established in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem and Israel fell as the center of Christianity after that time. So it's like all the, the center of Christianity changed because they were all exterminated. So there's, my, oh, there's no analogy between judgment, life, and condemnation in Daniel and judgment, wheat, and tares in AD 70. There's nothing either Daniel 12 or Matthew 13. <clears throat> there's no analogy between that and what happened in AD 70. Matthew chapter 13, verse 43, Jesus said the resurrection would be at the end of, quote, this age, as some translations render it. And you got to ask yourself, in what age was Jesus living? But Jesus said, then, then when? When the Son of Man would send forth his angels to gather the elect at the time of the harvest, which is the resurrection, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom. This is a direct echo, to use Richard Hayes' term of echoes of Scripture, a direct echo of Daniel chapter 12. Now watch this. Okay. Daniel can chapter I, 12. Can I say something? Is the this age. It, and uh, are they talking about Jesus? Is he talking about his age, or is he talking about the age when, <clears throat> when the tribulation happens at the end of the world? So, so at the end of this age, the terrors are gathered and burned in fire. Uh, Jesus could be talking about a future time, a future age, after the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple. It's just because it says this age it doesn't have much of a point. Resurrection and harvest of Matthew chapter 13. The harvest at the end of the age. But Daniel chapter 12 would be fulfilled when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. That was in AD 70. Therefore, the harvest at the end of the age of Matthew 13 was in AD 70. Well, let's go on. Uh, 
I got rewind. Uh, what was that that last little thing that he underlined? It says Jason must prove that Daniel twelve and Matthew thirteen are not parallel. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, why, why, why must Jason do that? What, what? Oh man, I I wish he would have actually talked to that and actually explained why Jason must prove that thing in order to win the debate. It's, it seems. It seems a little out there to me. H. But Daniel chapter 12 would be fulfilled when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. That was in AD 70. Therefore, the harvest at the end of the age of Matthew 13 was in AD 70. Well, let's go on. Jesus in John chapter 5 foretold the resurrection of the just and of the unjust. Do not marvel at this, for I say unto you, the hour is coming, in which all that are in the graves, they shall come forth. Some everlasting life, some everlasting shame. Once again, virtually all scholars agree. He is calling on Daniel chapter 12. Well, all right. So it's, it's a bunch of claims, and then it's a complete non sequitur leap of logic. And so, yeah, resurrection. Oh, Matthew's drawing on Daniel. Yeah, sure. That's good. Therefore, 70 AD. I, I, I just <laughs> I don't know how he gets to the 70 AD, but it, we'll see. Right? Daniel chapter 12 is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. John chapter 5, 28 and 29 is the resurrection of the just and the unjust. But the resurrection of Daniel chapter 12 would be when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. That means that the resurrection of John chapter 5, 28 and 29 would be when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. But that's not all. Look at Acts chapter 1. The coming of Christ. Yeah, how many how many times did Rome put down Jewish revolts? I, I I had a map somewhere of all the revolts that Rome put down, and there were quite a lot in Israel. They were very unruly people that kept rising up and kept getting put down. Uh, the Maccabees, you know, they get put down, and uh, so, it's, yeah, so it's, there's the fall of Temple, five eighty six BC, and then. You have Rome, uh, Rome coming in, taking Israel, the time of Herod, that's 60 BC. That, then they're completely shattered. Then you have 70 AD where they're completely shattered. But then you have the Bar uh, Kokbar rebellion that was 130 AD. And that's when Rome finally came in and, and threw down all the stones in the temple and completely cleared off the Temple Mount. And so you have. You know, several times when the power of Israel is completely shattered, it's it, you can't just tag it for AD 70. They, they seem to be completely powerless except for a brief moment where the Maccabees take power. And so other than, other than that, there are conquered people that are that are always paying tribute and have foreign rulers. So it, it's it's kind of weird that uh, it, it's like 70 AD. It's got to be 70 AD. Roddy says, I'm under the impression that Revelation was written circa 90 AD. It's given that date because early church historians, I think Eusebius, puts John on Patmos under some sort of persecution writing this in old age. The internal evidence doesn't suggest this. If you go read John A.T. Robinson's Redating the New Testament, he, he tries to redate everything 
only using internal evidence and he puts it before the temple fall. And I think it's before the temple fall as well because the temple's still standing. And so it creates an interesting thing for people who want revelation to come true with exact details. They have to advocate that the temple has to be rebuilt at some time in the future in order to fulfill revelation. So they're they're always watching Israel to see if the temple is going to be rebuilt because that's a sign of the end of the times because the temple is standing in revelation when these things happen. It was written before 70 AD. And uh, the numbers numbers in there point to Nero as as one of the one of the indicators. And so no, I, I don't believe it was written in 90 AD. Um but a lot of people do. And they're using extra biblical sources for that dating. A lot of those things are, uh, I'll give an example. Papias, uh, he thought that uh, Judas, after Judas betrayed Jesus, his head swelled to such an extent that he couldn't walk through doors. He had <laughs> trouble walking through doors. And so sometimes like these legends would uh, be perpetuated very early. This guy's before Eusebius. So Eusebius is actually the one quoting Papias. Um, but you have all these early legends floating around about all these different things, and some of them are less credible than others. And so internal evidence probably should be priority in, in our dating mechanisms and schemes. Christ in Acts chapter 1 is the time of the resurrection foretold by Daniel. Jason agrees with this because he said Daniel 12 is the end of the age resurrection, the end of the current Christian age. But watch, the resurrection foretold by Daniel 12, which is the time of the coming of Acts chapter 1, would be fulfilled when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. Therefore, the coming of Christ in Acts chapter 1, listen to me, no matter what our concept of in like manner might be, no matter what our con concept of this same Jesus might be. So here, here's where he's doing these disclaimer statements. For his system to work, Jesus had to have returned in some sort of non-physical way. It's what 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 he's he sounds like he's arguing right here to me. That uh, put aside our concepts here and here, this is fulfilled, and here is how it, it's fulfilled. That uh, it ignores those preconceptions. Not that we should have preconceptions, but we need to try to put ourselves in the mind of the authors. Are they envisioning some sort of spiritual kingdom a spiritual return that doesn't really manifest I, I i don't think so daniel chapter 12 is the controlling temporal delimitation that is controlling time statement of when acts chapter 1 would be fulfilled but we're not through in paul's magnum opus on the resurrection he has every constituent element found in daniel chapter 12. Daniel foretold the time of the end. Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. Paul says, then comes the end, the time of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Obviously, both speak of the resurrection. Paul, or excuse me, Daniel said it would be the time in which the righteous would shine forth in the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the time of the entrance into the kingdom. By the way, Paul's doctrine of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 would be when the law that is the strength of sin would be overcome. Now, I asked Jason what law that would be, and he said it's the moral law. Okay, so so listen to this part. Listen, listen, listen to his argument. So he said, uh, 
uh, the law, which is the strength of sin. That's a reference to the end of Corinthians. Uh, in Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, the law is mentioned once at the very end, and it's in this phrase that the law is the strength of sin. And so he asked his de debate partner, Wallace, uh, what's this law referring to? And Wallace said, oh, yeah, moral law. And this guy says, oh, it's the Torah, uh, meaning I don't think that he doesn't equate moral law and the Torah. And and here, let's listen to what, what he does with this. I beg to differ with that. In Paul, in Pauline literature, Paul uses the term the law, honomos, 117 times. There are only 10 times in the entire Pauline corpus in which he is not referring to the law of Moses. The law of Moses was the strength of sin, because Paul himself said in Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21, the law entered that sin might abound. The law, not law, the law entered that sin might abound. He said in Romans chapter 7, 6 and following, I was alive once without the law, but the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. I did not know sin except the law said, thou shalt not covet. What law is he talking about? The law that he is talking about that informed him of his sin was the law of Moses. Now watch this. In 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of the dead would be when the law that was the strength of the sin would be overcome. The law that was the strength of sin was Torah, the law of Moses. Therefore, the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15 would be at the end of the law of Moses, just like Daniel chapter 12 foretold that the resurrection would be when the power of the holy people, which was Torah, and her relationship with, with Yahweh was overcome. Perfect correlation between Daniel 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <laughs> I just did a Bible study, Romans 6, 7, and 8. The, the law... Um, what he's referring to as the law changes a lot. And you have to look at the context. Context will tell you if it's the natural law, is it um, the law of Moses? What? <clears throat> and the law is used, I don't know how many times he said, but you have to be careful about the definition. There's different kinds of law. There's the law of righteousness. That, it, anyway, you, you just can't say the law. And besides that, there were a lot of Jews left in the land, and they had a rebellion against the Romans in A.D. 130. The law was still going on between A.D. 70 and 130. I don't know how the law was destroyed in A.D. 70. Uh, so uh, here is his claim, and I thought it was... Um interesting we'll use the word interesting when he made it uh that uh since daniel talks about the downfall of the holy people or whatnot or the um that's the same thing as overthrowing the law that that paul talks about that's a complete non sequitur to me it's like um i don't think so and those both are referring to 70 a.d Right, so that's that's a couple non sequiturs. Yeah, so the idea that Paul had was that once you go into Paul's gospel, 
as opposed to prior gospels, Jesus was teaching moral law. As soon as you get grafted in, uh, into in, through Paul's gospel, the law is dead to you. The law doesn't apply to you. And so to say that the overthrowing of the law is some sort of physical event that happens in 70 AD is completely ludicrous. It's um, he, he's not quoting. He's not quoting exactly where he's quoting about Paul, about law being overthrown or something like that. But Paul's entire ministry was, we're not subject to the law. We could do, we could do what we want. We shouldn't do what we want, but it, that's, that's not the salvation factor. And so it's, it's very tenuous. We'll, we'll use that word. Well, uh, his claim. Romans 8, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. So now you got to figure out, is he talking about the Torah? Is he talking about the laws that Jesus had? It's just, you just can't make a general statement about the law like that and then, and then make all those claims. Right. So uh, I did think that was that was a funny claim of his. So the argument, one again, once again, is the. So basically, um, there, there's a meme that comes from "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia," where Ch Charlie, he's one of the characters, he's gone crazy, and he's drawn all these lines from all these letters, trying to make absurd conclusions. <laughs> that, that seems to be what's going on here. He's like, "This verse says this, and that means this verse, which says this, which means this event." And so it's every single. Every single inference and and drawing of parallels is uh, speculative. Some of them some of them are accurate. Yeah, a lot of those events are being drawn drawn upon, but some of them just have no basis in reality. It's just wild speculation that's just being presented as de facto claims, and it's smuggled in among claims that are more more plausible. And so maybe his audience doesn't realize how speculative those claims are. The resurrection of Daniel. Nope. If you're just setting up, just you know, on a perspective of how things look, if you're trying to convince someone from the Bible, would you have a sign that says "Disgrace Book" and and then "Howdy Partner"? It, it doesn't. I don't know where he's at, but uh, I th I think there these people are in a physical location, so I don't think it's either of their churches. I think this is just a millennial church. And so if you kind of look through screenshots, it looks like it's just being hosted at some random church. And so it's, it's not an online debate where they're choosing their own background. Okay. Chapter 12 is the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15. I don't think there's any dispute at all about that. Both predicted the resurrection to eternal life. Both predicted the kingdom. Both predicted the end of the age. So again, the resurrection of... Yes. We, we agree with that, but 70 AD, that's, that's a complete non sequitur. Therefore, 70 AD is not a valid conclusion from the evidence. Daniel 12 is the resurrection of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection of, 1, uh, excuse me, of Daniel 12 would be when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. The resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15 would be at the end of the law of Moses. Not some vague generic moral law, but at the, at the end of the law that was the strength of sin, which Paul, once again, to reemphasize, identified as the law of Moses. Therefore, 
the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15 was to be when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. Listen to me very carefully. Doesn't matter what our concept of the body in 1 Corinthians 15 is. By the way, Paul uses the singular, the body, in 1 Corinthians 15, not bodies, plural. What, with what body, singular, do they corporately come? That's powerful stuff, if we, if we will but grasp it. So once again, to reiterate, the resurrection of 1 Corinthians 15 was when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. We'll look now at Daniel chapter 12 and Revelation. I hope you can begin to see how paradigmatic, how controlling Daniel chapter 12 is for so many of these New Testament texts which speak of the resurrection. They are based on, they are being drawn from Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 foretold the time of the end, just as in Revelation chapter 10 and Daniel, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 11, we have the time of the end, the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Well, watch this. Sounding of the seventh trumpet is the last trumpet, which Paul said would be the time of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. So uh, G-Con says, the book of Daniel talks about a kingdom being set up and judging the Roman Empire in 70 A.D., the Romans scattered Israel. Two sentences. In 70 AD, the Romans scattered Israel. I'm not sure the book of Daniel has the Romans in mind, and so that would be something I'd have to be shown. Uh, any comments? You know, this guy is close to being heretical. If you Oh, Don, at, Don Preston? If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, it says, we are false witnesses of God because we have testified that God raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise for if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen and if Christ is not risen your faith is futile you are still in your sins if he's saying that the resurrection's already happened that's the Corinthians heresy that yeah, I think so. The, the dead had already risen. This is just, uh, this, is, this is not good. Right. So um, if, if the claim is that the resurrection happened in 70 AD, I would think that Paul would label that as a heresy as per 1 Corinthians 15. The idea would be there, there are actual bodies. Uh, they're spiritual bodies. They're bodies that don't decay, but they're actual bodies. This is a real kingdom. And if you read Jesus, and a very good book that summarizes this is Bart Ehrman's Apocalyptic Prophet of a New Millennium. Uh, a lot of his, his references to this new kingdom is physical. People are going to come there and have banquets. People are, are going to enter the gates. In Revelation, you see the kingdom coming down and being placed. There's a book, and then all the wicked cannot come, and then the and then the other peoples will bring tribute to this kingdom and God will reign on earth. Like there's a, there's a physical presence. This, these, these, this is all physical imagery to, so to, to claim it's all spiritual is not valid. There is a sense in which it's spiritual in which, which there's it's, it's here, but not yet. Bart Ehrman also talks about this as well, where, and others, the other Christian scholars that in Jesus, there's a, that's the mustard seed analogy that there there's a small spark now but it'll it'll flourish into this big thing and so you're you're seeing the beginnings of this and at some point it's going to man, manifest more wholly but it's, it, the idea is not that it's always going to be invisible and it's going to be a spiritual kingdom 
very much was supposed to be a reformation of the earth and a reestablishment of global justice on a global scale. The world would have justice. God would reign over the world. I, I don't. I don't think that's happening right now. <laughs> I just a lot, lot of bad things happening for that to be happening. And following. So 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection at the last trumpet. The resurrection in Revelation chapter 11 is the resurrection at the seventh trumpet, which is the last trumpet. Same resurrection. All right. Well, well, again, Daniel chapter 12 would be when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. And watch this. In Revelation chapter 11, the resurrection there would occur at the time of the judgment of the city, which spiritually was called Sodom and Egypt. Listen to me very carefully. Only one city, only one city in all of the Bible was spiritually designated as Sodom. That was Old Covenant Jerusalem. Isaiah 1, Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel chapter 23. Likewise, Jerusalem was designated as what? So a general rule for theology that I've set up in, in different, it's not about preterism at all, just about theology in general, is if your your argument is trying to uh, draw in various verses to sequentially build an argument rather than just general confirmation of the same principle, if you're saying this verse says this, and this verse says this, so if you add this verse to this verse, you could get this conclusion. As soon as you get past one jump of logic, it's just you're just completely fabricated. What you really need for a biblical argument is general agreement of an entire host of verses that are talking about the same concept and reinforcing the same idea. Not this weird thing where we we grab little snippets from one verse to try to add to some sort of logical flow that will ultimately lead to this uh, very non-specific conclusion that's nowhere described in any text. And, and, you know, the term he uses, Old Testament Jerusalem, that's that's nowhere in the Bible. But when Jesus came, comes, would it be New Testament Jerusalem then? <laughs> so I, it just doesn't make any sense. Egypt by Paul himself in Galatians 4 and in other texts. But the interpretive phrase in Revelation chapter 11 leaves no doubt whatsoever about what city is under consideration. It is also, also, it's not also spiritually designated as where the law, where Jesus was slain. Yeah, the uh, Christian observer writes, in this sort of tabernacle, uh, he quotes, Outside are the dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And he says, this sort of tabernacle people outside the spiritual kingdom that are still is still evil in his point of verse, point of view from this verse. Yeah. Also in Revelation, uh, you have a book and uh, and your name has to be in the book to get in the city. If you're evil, you're kept outside the city. It's a physical city that uh, evil people are not allowed into. So evil people still exist on earth um but th there's more immediate justice plane it is spiritually called sodom and egypt but it is where the lord was slain that is the interpretive phrase does anybody not know where jesus was slain there was only one city where jesus was slain well what do we find about this resurrection in, Le in revelation chapter 11 
The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and they shall rule forever and ever. And it is the time of the dead that they should be judged and the time of the prophets that they should be rewarded. So in Daniel 12, we have the time of the resurrection at the destruction of the power of the holy people. In Revelation chapter 11, the resurrection occurs at the time of the judgment of the city where the Lord was slain. Look at the argument very, very quickly. The resurrection of Daniel 12 is the resurrection of Revelation 11, 16 and following. The resurrection of Daniel 12 was when the power of the holy people is completely shattered, A.D. 70. The resurrection of Revelation chapter 11 was when the power of the holy people was completely shattered, A.D. 70. Therefore, the resurrection of Daniel 12 and Revelation chapter 11, but both of which are 1 Corinthians 15, was in A.D. 70. Look at that just a little bit closer, shall we? In Daniel chapter 12, Daniel was told, Daniel, go your way. You shall sleep with your fathers until the time. And again, all of the, these arguments are based on the assumption that if the Bible says it will happen, it must, must fulfill. It, it has to come about. It can't not fulfill. And so that's why when I think about preterism, I think about it as being some sort of mechanism a strained mechanism in which to justify the fulfillment of every prophecy, even if the data doesn't quite line up. It's a very strained way of looking at the data. You know, I hate to sound racist, but you go today, uh -oh. you go today and there's a lot of Jews in the world that hold significant posts. You know, they, they're, they're members of the political, they're bankers, there, there's a lot of powerful Jews. <laughs> so how can you say that the power of the holy people were shattered? Uh, it seems like it's pretty strong in today's world. And, and now today in Israel, they have a lot of power. So it, I don't know where he's getting that. Yeah, you could be a billionaire rapper and have your entire life destroyed by one comment towards one specific people group. And so, yeah, so that's true. That's true. They, they, they might have out outweighed power uh, for for what percent of the population they might be. Time of the end when you shall arise to your inheritance. So Daniel would be quote resurrected at the end of the, of the at the end of the age to receive his resurrection reward. No matter what our concept of that is. Well, in Revelation chapter 11, at the time of the destruction of the city where the Lord was slain, what does it say? It is the time of the dead that they should be judged. Daniel was dead. And the time of the prophets that they should be rewarded. Daniel would be rewarded at the time of the end of the age when the power of the holy people was completely shattered. The prophets would be rewarded at the time of the judgment of the city where the Lord was slain. That was in A.D. 70. The resurrection of the dead occurred in A.D. 70. Now, the only response to this might possibly be, well, okay, A.D. 70 was a type and a shadow of the real end. Jason did not indicate that in, in responding to my questions. But I want you to know that no New Testament writer ever indicates that what was coming very soon foreshadowed anything else. Furthermore, consider this. Jason's proposition reads that the resurrection will occur at the end of the current age. This is the Christian age. Well, folks, the Christian age has no end, period. 
the Christian age has no end. How can the resurrection and the coming of the Lord occur at the end of an age that the Bible affirms has no end? Secondly, the church nor the gospel will ever be destroyed. So that's what I'm talking about with like a smuggling definitions and things like that. It's like, have you even queried this guy on how he understands these terms? You probably haven't. I'm not defending uh, Wallace. I'm not defending Wallace or anything like that, but I'm sure Wallace has a pretty straightforward answer to these objections that uh, our friend uh, Preston probably is just not aware of. And so that's... He's, oh, go ahead. He's redundant. He's been repeating himself just constantly. He doesn't have any new information. Uh, can you get fast forward a little bit more? <laughs> uh, he's 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 about he's getting off the stage like in two seconds. It looks like it looks like he's off the stage in less than a minute. So Troy, as we have already demonstrated, play him out. And I want you to notice what Paul said in First Corinthians chapter five, chapter ten, and verse eleven. This is a powerful text when rendered properly from the Greek. Paul says the goal <laughs> when rendered properly from the Greek. Uh, uh, that's that's always fun. it's translation is a, not a hard science. It's it's not mathematics. It's not something that has even mathematics has like fuzzy answers sometimes to some of some formulas and questions but it's it's not an exact science it's you, you, a lot of times there's a lot of guesswork that goes into translation and so claiming that one translation is the proper translation it's like you'll understand this only if this is translated correctly it's like well it's translations that are much more loose than we give it that's that's not just not how language works language is loose language is flexible as edwin hatch writes in the book that I just published on Amazon.com, now in hard copy as well. I ordered my hard copy. It should be here on my doorstep right now, my, my official copy. But uh, he says that uh, that people don't write with a mathematical precision. Pe people just write like normal human beings when they're communicating. And, and we, we do well not to uh, create inverted pyramids on chance word phrases and so that always gets me when people just fundamentally misunderstand how language works and operates well how does he translate first corinthians 10 11 i'd be interested in i think i think he's going to tell us uh, maybe maybe let's let's hear the previous ages had arrived he uses the greek word telos goal not end not termination the goal of the previous ages had arrived now, that means in order for there to be another future resurrection, another future end of the age, then Paul was wrong to say that the goal, not a goal, but the goal of the previous ages was coming upon them, pardon me, 2,000 years ago. So that's his translation. Very specific meaning of telos. And then... Uh, it's not telos, it's tele, it's ends. The ends of the ages have arrived, and a new age could come after that. And all the other age, ages is the end. <laughs> I just, it's just in, in. How does he, how does he translate it? How does he think his translation helps him? I don't understand. I think it's just a, one of those flashy claims. 
I'm using a Greek word, and because I used a Greek word, whatever I claim about this Greek word is in fact accurate, and so then you should believe my other claims too. Uh, therefore, 70 AD. AD 70, folks, <laughs> was not a type. It was not a shadow of something else. It was the real deal. So let me summarize and conclude. Daniel chapter 12 predicted the end of the age resurrection. The only age that was ever intended or predicted to end in the Bible. Yeah, the Romans were not the angels that are coming to judge the world and coming to judge Israel. That's not what anyone had in mind. There was no Roman overthrow of Israel. It just it doesn't fit the data. And so this is I this I think this is very forced. That's why it's it's hard. It, preterism really looks to me like mental gymnastics to make the prophecy fulfill. Is the old covenant age of Israel. Daniel 12 is emphatic and it is explicit that the resurrection of the just and the unjust to everlasting life or everlasting condemnation would, would be when Israel's covenant power, Torah, was destroyed. That cannot refer to the end, end of the endless Christian age or the end of the endless gospel. That was in AD 70. And therefore, my proposition is established. Thank you very much. I don't, I don't see him talk. He, he never talked about AD 70, what happened in AD 70, how AD 70 meets the data, how that's exactly what the data is referring to rather than the other dates we've talked about and how AD 70 shows that any of these things are fulfilled. It was always talk about this Bible verse here, talk about this Bible verse here, therefore AD 70. I, I don't see him establishing his proposition. And so we'll fast forward to our, our next guy, Wallace. And uh, he he's kind of a joker. Uh, he doesn't like dispensationalists from the little <laughs> little I've seen in him. And so we'll, we'll try to figure out who is the I don't know the bigger clown in the debate. Memory. He claims to have memorized over fourteen thousand verses of scripture. He's a yeah. So our our friend. Uh, Doc, Don Preston, he knows the Bible, he could quote the Bible, but that doesn't necessarily mean he could compute, compile, analyze data. So data retention is different than analyzing data, and uh, it, it's, it's good not to confuse the two. Proponent of a system with which Don and I would both disagree. It's called dispensationalism. It's the theology behind the late great planet Earth, the Left Behind series, and the Calvary Chapel movement. So the, a little bit of poisoning the well. It's like you ever see that Nicolas Cage movie where people disappear in the plane. That's what <laughs> dispensationalism caused. I don't know the name of the movie. Uh, what, what's that called? Oh, it's, it's like a terrible movie. Like uh, uh, I'll have to find it. But left uh, behind. was it what the Nick was Nicholas Cage? Did he star in that? No, I, I don't remember watching the movie, but yeah, it's poisoning the well with 
things that most dispensationalists disagree with now. It was the the film was called Left Behind, <laughs> and it, it like I think they were trying to save budget, so it was like all fi- I didn't watch the movie, and so I think it was all fil- filmed on like this uh, stage set that was just a plane because they were just sit- trying to save money, and it, I don't know like what 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 would happen if a bunch of people disappeared in a plane? <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. When you listen to one of Mr. Van Impe's presentations, it is very clear he can quote scripture. The problem is, the more you listen, the more you realize there's a fundamental problem with his interpretation of those scriptures. Dispensationalism keeps embarrassing itself with false so the problem with this guy is uh the other guy's like data 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 look at my data all his, his conclusions are not quite supported by his data and he makes a lot of leaps of logic but this guy's like oh look at this view it's it's kind of bad and embarrassing it's, it's just ad hominem arguments what what is he doing he's both of them don't like dispensationalists so why why is no, no. he even bringing this up? The first guy is considered a dispensationalist. He is. <laughs> uh, I'm guessing. I get. I. I. I'm. Maybe. Maybe I. Maybe I got that wrong, but my impression is that uh, our friend here Wallace found out that Preston affirms some sort of dispensationalism, and yeah. so that's what he's attacking. Preterism doesn't sound close to dispensationalism to me. It could be if, let's say that uh, you, you could still hold that all those events were fulfilled in 70 AD and God works with the different people groups in different ways at different points of time and uh, incorporates the Gentiles with a different dispensation. than it. So they could, in theory, work together, but not necessarily. So you don't have to be a dispensationalist to be a preterist. Um, so I maybe Preston is, a, I just assumed, based on these attacks, that Preston was a dispensationalist. Maybe it's not the case. Maybe he's not a dispensationalist. We're seeing them this month. The, let me get my timer actually running, my apologies. The early editions of late great planet Earth said the world was going to end in thermonuclear war within 40 years or so of 1948. Yeah. It is like, uh, look at these false predictions by these dispensationalists. Therefore, my opponent, who didn't talk about anything like that, he didn't make any predictions whatsoever. Um, therefore, he's he's affiliated with these false predictions for some reason. Therefore, he's wrong. He's like, did you ever read the book, like, 89 Reasons that the End Will Be in 1989? Oh, my opponent is so terrible, right, guys? You know, it's it's from Matthew 24, and Jesus said, uh, these things, um, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so they, they go to the establishment of Israel in 1948, and then, so your generations, 20, 35, whatever years they have. The problem is um, it, 
it's this subjunctive case. And, and when you look at it and you really translate in the Greek, it says, and all these things might take place before this generation passed away. Well, guess what? The generation passed away. Those things didn't take place, but Jesus never claimed it would. He just said it might or might not take place. I, I think there's pretty strong indication that Jesus thought in all probability it would take place, even though they didn't see the future as like set. Like, uh, is it P Peter writes that, you know, for the sake of the elect, these days will be shortened. And so he says, pray that these things don't happen during winter or whatnot. They didn't think the future was in any way set. They thought that the whole future was open to change, dynamic. There are things that are planned, but not planned in minutia. Uh, there, there, there's general, general trends that would take place. And so I think that's why Jesus there is using that subjunctive. But I do think Jesus thought it would happen within the lifetime of his hearers. I think there's a lot of references to that. And, and that's the argument of the preterist, that those things did happen within that generation. So that's why there's right. beauty. I agree with the preterists to the extent that all the biblical authors thought it would happen within one or two generations. But I don't agree with them that anyone would consider 70 AAD as that fulfillment. <laughs> David writes, John is still alive. He runs a 7-Eleven <laughs> in New Jersey. <laughs> that is, oh, uh, I think there's an ancient writer that takes that that position that like, there, there's an ancient legend of the wandering Jew. So if you look at the wandering Jew, it's like someone who supposedly interacted with Jesus or something, someone, or, and he said that you won't die until you see these things. And the person's like, just still alive and wandering. And so there, there's like crazy legends like that. Um, oh, it, it's in multiple books. I was trying to think of the name of the book, like uh, Mid legends of the middle ages, something like that, that I was reading with that in it. But yeah, the, the, these legends are alive that that certain people who interacted with Jesus are still alive and wandering the earth because they were promised to see the end. And then it just never happened. I guess those people, uh, people describing this legend are not preterists. <laughs> There's this endless parade of books. I won't go through them all. There was Edgar Wisenant. Why go through them all there? He's, he's poisoning the well. Okay, we'll skip forward. Our sons of Abraham by faith, but dispensationalism said, no, no, no. Israel and the church, two different... Dispensational is bad, therefore my preterist opponent is wrong. ...different peoples. You go back to the old dispensationalist, two different peoples, two different ways of salvation, two different hopes, one earthly people, one heavenly people. How Lindsay said the church... So yeah, that's, that's, that's a position that uh, Bob Enyart took, that the Gentiles would uh, inherit... A heaven and the Jews would inherit the earth. And so some dispensationalists have this idea. He's using it as a pejorative, like these people believe these these weird things, therefore you guys shouldn't like them. But uh, I, I think that everything's inheriting the earth. You see a combination of earth and heaven within Revelation, in which the two merge, and then God's focal point is on the earth. God, that's where God reigns and lives. And so it's it, uh, he lumps all dispensationalists into this weird category, 
lumps them all together, and then cites the worst examples he can find. And so I, I, I don't think it's very informative. Church is plan B, and it must fail. And a remnant is going to get raptured away so God can go back to dealing with Israel. It would be like if uh, I was arguing against Calvinists, and I had Robert Wisner on the program once to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. But if you look at his Facebook feed or anything like that, he's like he's he's like a flaming leftist. And so all his takes are the worst takes in the world. All all his takes are about like race in America, things like that. It's like if I was citing him in my arguments to Calvinists, like look at what Calvinists it's like you're trying to poison the well with like one bad actor. It's you can't generalize like that. And this, this strategy in the debate just kind of paints this guy, Jason Wallace, as dishonest. Well, I used to believe in the pre-trib rapture, but I don't think there's enough evidence in Scripture for pre-trib rapture. I, I've changed my position on that. But it, it has nothing to do with the topic. <laughs> he thinks that if he, he defeats dispensationalism, he defeats preterism. You start pointing out these problems, you're met with a flurry of Bible verses, along with accusations of anti-Semitism and holding to what they like to call replacement theology. For all the Bible verses, there are fundamental problems with the system. It doesn't fit all of Scripture. It is flatly contradicted by Scripture. Yeah, you would not expect Paul's dispensation to fit all of scripture because he specifically argues in Ephesians 3 that this <laughs> has not been revealed before uh, to the holy apostles and prophets as it's now been revealed. And so he, he's arguing something new. And so to say that it doesn't like fit all of scripture, it's like that that is Paul's ministry. If Paul's ministry fit all of scripture, it wouldn't be the mystery. You know, I, I question his scholar scholarly approach the replacement theory that's a covenant theological idea with which the lutherans and other calvinists have that the church replaces uh israel somehow and, and the church gets all the promises of israel that's not a dispensational idea that that is covenant theology and i don't know why he's bringing it up Right. So in Ephesians 3, it says that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. And so we're fellow partakers. But uh, Paul's idea is not that the two groups are equal or the two groups are the same, even though that we might be fellow partakers. He talks in Romans 11 and 12 about the Jews being cut off, the Gentiles being grafted in, but he still treats the Jews as a unique group that are not the Gentiles. He's not saying the Gentiles have replaced the Jews, the Gentiles are the new Jews, anything like that. He's saying there's still future plans for this cut-off people known as the Jews. The Gentiles are just being grafted into the current promise. And so, yeah, you're, you're right that this covenant theology in which the Gentiles have replaced the Jews and now all the Jewish covenants apply to the Gentiles, that is... Uh, not a dispensationalist idea. That's a covenant theology idea. And so he, he might, 
maybe here, I'm just going to throw this out here. Maybe he didn't know what he is debating tonight, so he just put <laughs> he just put together a random opening. Um, Scripture. Please be clear, I am not questioning the motives of dispensationalists. I believe that the vast majority of them are sincere in their beliefs. Hey, like someone's like, hey, do you want to debate on preterism? He's like, yeah, sure. And he's, he spends like his whole month like researching dispensationalism. And maybe like an hour before the debate, he's like, oh, this was about preterism. Well, I'm not going to scrap everything I've done. So I'll, I'll just go with the dispensationalist stuff. <laughs> problem is they're sincerely wrong about these distinctives. I briefly touched on the reason that for no, most of them are unaware that for 1800 years, no one read the Bible the way they do. They think it is the plain and clear reading of scripture. And yet no one for 1800 years held to the dispensationalist system. What? What is he talking about? Sean and many of you were dispensationalists. <laughs> I was a dispensationalist. Okay, it seemed a reasonable. Men like J. Stuart Russell, Milton Terry, 19th century, even they held out a future return of Christ. Don he like legit thought he's debating an entirely different subject than the debate was about. It's like... <laughs> But who's he quoting? Charles Taze Russia. The is is that the Jehovah Witness guy? Who is he quoting? All right, skip it forward again. Because these things do matter. We're talking about a totality of the second coming. Does a preterist view 70 AD does it fit oh. with all that scripture Okay, I, I think the preterists win this debate. <laughs> <laughs> How could they win? <laughs> they <were terrible. laughs> if your opponent doesn't argue anything relevant to the, you, you, I it's it's just it's a, it's a forfeit. I think this is a for he, he came to the wrong debate. He had a different debate scheduled for tonight about dispens. <laughs> he went to the wrong debate, and the guy arguing predatorism went to the dispensationalist debate. <laughs> Somewhere there exists a debate where the guy's confused that the guy's arguing against preterism. Says about the about what this second coming is going to entail. First Peter three twenty says no prophecy is of any private interpretation. Uh, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Oh. <laughs> the guy's a Catholic. <laughs> he doesn't think the Reformation happened. He. he uh, the Pope, the Pope gets sole authority to interpret the Bible. I, I think this is one of those Isaiah cards where where it's like uh, God's ways are higher than our ways, and so therefore I'm right and you're wrong. Scriptures have no <laughs> private interpretation. That means I'm right and you guys are wrong. Oh, last night Don stressed to you the importance of the original. So I did look up this guy's books. And uh, none of them seemed like serious books. And so that was that was a red flag. Um, it, it prob I'm colorblind, so it's a muted red flag. And so maybe it could have been more red flaggy. But uh, that, that was an indication of what we're seeing here. Audience, being able to understand things. It's not enough to simply read things and impose a meaning. 
The problem is he has to believe that the New Testament was fundamentally misunderstood by the vast majority of its original audience. This, this is really terrible. Both of these guys, uh, both of these guys are are imagining what the other person believes, and then they're attacking that belief. <sighs> this this is incredibly poor. <laughs> At least the first guy uh, attempted to build some sort of case for some sort of proposition. Uh, this guy, this guy's, this guy's not. by the time that you get to the second generation, they didn't get the fact that there's a future, or there's not a future coming of Christ. You see, Don argues there's a great apostasy. Unlike our. So one thing, when you're reading the Bible and you're reading all these later letters after Jesus has died, a lot of them are are in full apology mode, trying to explain to Christians living at that time why the heck the second coming hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um. All, all the early all of the earliest Christians were expecting that second coming to happen within their lifetimes and they they have to try to keep the flock by explaining reasons why it hasn't happened yet as they were expecting it's it's apologetics to that current audience and so yeah um I'll, so I don't know what this guy I don't know what he's he's, he's talking about our neighbors, he doesn't quite say that there are many plain and precious truths that have been lost, but it's essentially, it's not just that there was an apostasy, there was an apostasy that was so complete that no one read the Bible the way that Mr. Preston does until the 1960s. Yeah, so what do we have for early Christian writings? We don't have much. We have a lot of like Gnostic texts. We don't have a lot of biblical commentary. We definitely don't have a lot of New Testament commentary. The New Testament was floating around in various fashions. Origen talks about the multiplicity of texts, but it's, it's not like, I, I'm, I'm not sure what, I'm not sure he's aware of what available evidence that we have from early Christianity of what they understood of the New Testament. We just, we just don't have that. You know what I'm saying? It's it, it, it's incredible. I, I don't know. Is he trying to say that, you know, Catholicism from Augustine to what, Martin Luther in 1550? No one read the Bible like that until. I, what is he trying? He's making no points and he's not making any points from Scripture. He, he's a. <laughs> I don't know where he's going. And so if you're looking for apocalypticism, I, I don't know if that's what he's trying to get here. It's like, what do you what do you have to draw upon to show common early Christian beliefs? You might have uh, the Didache, the 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 right the twelve. Uh, you might have maybe a God, Epistle of Barnabas. Maybe kind of you might have Clement of Rome. That you might draw on to try to try to gather early Christian beliefs. You just don't have very much, so it's it's hard to make very firm claims about what the early Christians believed because we just just we we don't have very much preserved. When we read how Christians were reading their Bibles, what? 
we see that <laughs> they were reading them to say that there was a future coming. Yes, uh, the effort, they were it phased out, though. So apocalypticism was very common very early on in Christianity. But as time went on, because the apocalypse did not happen, the apocalypticism phased out and was replaced by this idea that we're looking for a spiritual resurrection to a spiritual world rather than a re reformation of the earth. And so there is a gradual phase out, but he's not citing examples or, or giving any evidence of this. It's, it's kind of weird. Mr. Preston is humble. He has, uh, he does know much of the biblical languages, but he has said, I'm not a Greek scholar in other venues. But he's having to say that the people who spoke Koine Greek as their first language didn't get it. The people who were taught by the people who were taught by the apostles didn't get it. Every creed of every church in all of history speaks with one voice of a future return of Christ, not 70 AD. Right. What, when are those creeds made? What, what's his earliest creed he's citing? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's cite, the creeds are all late. I don't, know what he, I don't know what he's trying to get here. Okay, so maybe his idea is this, that if preterism was true, then all these later creeds would understand it's true and then treat preterism as accurate. Is that his argument? That, that seems to be his argument. It's hard to figure out what his argument is. I don't know. Okay, so so his argument is premised on the fact that the preterism that's advocated by Preston, that the preterism advocated by Preston would be obvious to anyone living through the post-70 AD event and therefore affirmed, and then therefore all those creeds would incorporate preterism into their their creedal statements. That, but, I, I, but does he believe that there's not going to be a future coming of Christ? Everybody believes there'll be a future. Well, no, he does. But his argument against um, the preterist is that since all the early Christians... And he's using that in a loose term. So it's it's like the later early Christians, like the 380 plus Christians, all of them believed everything was future. Therefore, it's still future. Something like that. You know, you're, Justin Wilson, he's a preterist, right? But Seventh-day Adventist preterist, <clears throat> they, they don't think Christ has come back. They don't think AD 70 Christ came back. They think that's still in the future, that all those things it talks about in Revelation are being fulfilled today as we speak. So he, he's got to be a very uh, unordinary preterist. Yeah, there's so many variations of preterism. I, I wish our friend uh, Wallace would focus on the debate topic and argue specifically towards that. He doesn't seem to do that. He and he doesn't seem to give evidence. It's it's not. It doesn't. It feels like he's shooting off the cuff and he doesn't know what he's talking. Just his presentation style. 
it feels like he's just saying things in sequence rather than actually making evidenced points. Yeah, I agree. And yet we're to believe that in the 1960s, something has come along that has undermined that. Why would the church speak with well, the Why would all what the Christian 1960s? writers... So really, okay, so the 1960s person would have denied the second coming of Christ? No, so he's saying preterism is a 1960s belief. And so he's saying it is incredulous that the Christian church would be ignorant of preterism until 1960 came about and then rediscovered preterism and mm -hmm. preterism is actually the true. So it's an argument from history, argument from tradition. If preterism was true, it wouldn't have had to be rediscovered in the 60s, which, you know, it could could be a valid argument. But uh, it's like, uh, well, are you a Catholic or are you a Protestant? <laughs> it's because if you're a Protestant, these these arguments don't don't quite follow because you have to admit at some level that the entire church went astray in some fashion. And so, if the preterism that's being advocated by Preston, if the preterism advocated by Preston includes the possibility that the entire church doesn't know. We're in this millennium age or wherever he thinks we are in this preteristic uh, timeline. Um, then he could just respond with that. It's like, yeah, that doesn't disclude my beliefs about preterism. And then then this guy's arguments just it, it, it doesn't go anywhere. All speak with one voice. Because I believe the scriptures are clear that these things do matter. The nature of the body. The nature of what is... So I think he's reformatting anti-dispensationalist beliefs. Like, uh, he's reformatting the arguments against dispensationalism and then applying them to preterism. Because it, when you deal with people who are arguing against dispensationalism, they'll say, oh, it's a recent belief that just arose and it just it came about with... And they'll, they'll cite people that I've, I've never heard of or never read. And uh, they'll say, oh, these people invented dispensationalism. It's like, I'm a dispensationalist. I never heard about these guys. And I don't agree with almost anything that those guys have said that you told me about. I don't know. And so it, it, he's some, I, I don't think it's original arguments. I think he's just reformatting arguments to his current, current situation. It's taking place in this timing. It does matter. In Acts 23, verse 6, Paul tells the Sanhedrin, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am called in question. Church says, that's not a problem. We're looking for the same thing, a physical resurrection. Mr. Preston would have us believe... Okay, so we'll, we'll kind of stop there, but we'll, we'll format. If we were responding to the preterist, how would our response be formatted what would it look like what what are your ideas i think you go uh, to first corinthians 15 or you go to daniel 12 and you say well let's just go to daniel 12 right off i'll, I'll look at it. there shall be a, a time of trouble and at that time your people shall be delivered that didn't happen in ad 70 Everyone is found written in the book. Well, that with 
Christ coming, everyone written in the book should be Christians, and many of those who sleep in the dust shall awake. What? He's never addressed that either, has he? How does he address that people that are resurrected are coming out of their graves? In the last time, Jesus will come on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will split in two. And the people who are dead, you should see all the graves in the Mount of Olives. Those people will rise up out of their graves. <laughs> None of that happened. Uh, sub to shame, and, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. I don't know how you get 80, 70 from that at all. I don't know how you get, Paul, Paul says that none of these things will happen until um, uh, the son of perdition comes and sets himself up in the temple of God, declaring himself that he is God. That that didn't happen at AD 70. Oh, none, of the, none of the things that talk about the end times. And I, I do think Revelation, that same phrase, time, times, and half a time, is mentioned in Revelation, is mentioned in Daniel 12. I think that that's a future time, a future fulfillment of that last week in Daniel that was postponed. Because a preterite would think it's 49 years from, from whenever Jesus was born. And it, in AD 70 doesn't fit that timeline. I, none of these things, either in Daniel 12, Matthew 13, and Paul's presentation, none of these things have been fulfilled. I don't know. Uh, there's just so many things. I, I don't see any positive case made. Yeah. So um, on on my uh, blog, reality is not optional. I got a, a post from like ten years ago in which I detail the worst failed biblical prophecy, and it's it's the apocalyptic prophecies that you see throughout throughout yeah. uh, the New Testament, especially. And so I kind of outline a bunch of different references to. Uh, different statements throughout the Bible that indicate that these these things are going to happen. What's going to look like, and it, it just it just didn't materialize in our historical data. I said to John, soon the angels would descend on mankind, kill the wicked. Matthew three ten, create a new city ruled by God or God's delegate. John called this the kingdom of God. Matthew three two to prepare for this coming apocalypse. John preaches to his hearers that they must flee from their sins. Matthew so he's preaching to a current audience. Reform yourselves, uh, reform yourselves morally because this is going to come. You might not get into the kingdom. It's it's his current audience that's hearing this. Turn to God, become righteous. Those who don't will be burnt to death, Matthew 3, 12. Jesus picks up this mystery in his time. John is killed. Jesus becomes the main preacher of this apocalypse. Jesus' message is that very soon God would separate the sheep from the goats, Matthew 5, 33, the righteous from the righteous. Those who turn to follow Jesus would live, and the rest would be punished by angels, Matthew 16, 27. Angels, they're not Romans, they're angels. Angels were reapers sent to kill the righteous, Matthew 13, 29. Round up the wicked and slaughter them, Matthew 13, 41. Rulers, rulers and current powers would be overthrown and supplanted by the kingdom of God. It's not like the Romans were to keep ruling and, and be the rulers over Israel, and then Israel would be this semi-servitude while these pagans would... It, 
that's not the idea. It's like the, the kingdom's going to come. God's going to rule the earth. Throughout Jesus's ministry, the apocalypse was at hand. Matthew 4, 17, 10, 7, 21, 34, Mark 1, 15. People he spoke to would not die before it happened. Matthew 16, 27 through 28. That's what we've We've referenced before that generation will not pass away before it came. Matthew 24, 25 to 34. Everyone would soon see the Son of Man sitting in the clouds. The disciples could not even go through the cities of Israel before it happened. Jesus even stated that the current age was when everything would occur. Luke 21, 22. The end was nigh. Luke 21, 28. People Jesus spoke to would see it just as they see spring. Luke 21, 31. It's like... Uh, Jesus chastised people for not seeing the time had come, Luke 12, uh, 56. And so then it's kind of subverted. Uh, people start uh, losing hope. But still throughout throughout the post-Jesus writings, everyone believes that the end is going to happen. All these things are going to come about. Remember, one of the key events is the angels coming, separating the wicked from the righteous, killing the wicked, establishing righteous rule on earth these were the apocalyptic hopes you know the only way that makes sense is open theism that god changed his mind and did something else even the advent of the body of christ and paul in ephesians 3 says it's not in the old testament you can't search for it you can't find it this body of christ was unprophesied Things happen, and they, they're they not on that strict timeline that all these people that are covenant theologians and the, the original dispensationalists, uh, God, God can change his mind, and he can do what he wants to do. <laughs> right. So if you're judging the Bible by a strict prophecy definition, whereas mechanically if a prophecy is said, that it must happen in detail, as it said, the Bible is going to fail that test. But if it's loose and you're allow loose time frames, maybe that captivity is supposed to be seventy years, maybe it's sixty years, maybe maybe uh, people are supposed to be in bondage, maybe three hundred years, but it's actually like eighty years or something like. That. If it's loose timelines, if, if things are flexible, if prophecy doesn't have to happen exactly, then the Bible makes sense. But if it's close theism, God knows all the future and all prophecy must happen in detail, the Bible's false. Yeah, we can get into that sometime too, but, but I agree completely. Yeah, so uh, John Golden Gay writes the word biblical commentary on Daniel, <laughs> and he says it's, it's not the nature of biblical text to... I'm going to try to find their direct quote real quick. I'm going to have to pull it up. He says it's it's not the nature of biblical prophecy to foretell events exactly as they're going to happen. And so I would recommend that everyone who is really into preterism and thinks that Daniel is some sort of evidence for this to read John Golden Gay's commentary on Genesis 11 and 12 before they come to their conclusion. So here, here's the quote. Oh, uh, uh, I'll read the full thing afterwards. It's not the nature of biblical prophecy to give a literal account of, uh, of events before they take place. 
So here's his comments on Daniel 11, 40 through 45. The him, again, propose, pre presupposes that the northern king is the same person as that in verses 21 through 38. There is no hint of a transition to Antichrist or Antiochus V or Pompey and his associates, while the phrase, quote, at the time of the end, contrast to verse 35, seems to preclude our taking the verses as a resume of Antiochus's career as a whole. Porphyry assumed that the quasi-predictive historical account of Antiochus's career continues in these verses, but verses 40 through 45 cannot be correlated with actual events as verses 21 through 39 can. Further, in verses 40 through 45, the utilization of scriptural, scriptural phraseology becomes more systematic than was the case earlier. So there, there's a clear transition in Daniel 11 from very specific things to kind of general things. The phraseology being used morphs in verse 40 is what he's saying. He says, these facts suggest that verse 40 marks the transition from quasi-prediction based on historical facts to actual prediction based on scripture and then on the pattern of earlier events. This continues into 12, 1 through 3. These predictions then are not to be read as if they are mere anticipatory announcements of fixed future events like the promises and warnings of the prophets. They paint an imaginative scenario of the kind of issue that must come from present events. The fact that their portrayal does not correspond to actual events in the 160s BCs compares with the fact that the Christ event does not correspond to other Old Testament prophecies of future redemption. It is not the nature of biblical prophecy to give a literal account of events before they take place. So Golden Gate is, number one, denying that Isaiah past verse 40 is predictive of actual things that are actually going to concur, actually going to conclude, occur, take place. He's saying those are imaginative apocalyptic scenarios. Prior to that is accurate descriptions of events that take place, but there's a transition in the text. And he had put the writing of Daniel at that point. So it's, it's recounting history versus predicting the future. That's where he'd put the writing of that part of Daniel. But he's saying that just in general, the biblical prophecy is not, it's not crystal ball prophecy. It's not, not like Nostradamus. Let's look in a crystal ball to see exactly how events are going to occur and then describe how those events are going to occur. And they must happen in movie fashion. That's just not the nature of biblical prophecy in general. They're loose. They're flexible. Um, they have wiggle room that they might not even obtain. And so I, I think Golden Gate is very informative for anyone who cares about preterism, cares about Daniel, cares about <laughs> eschatology. Golden Gate, his commentary is necessary on 12 and 13 of Daniel. Yeah, I, it's just impossible to take Daniel 11 and apply it all to events that happen and that would be a good topic to have a, a podcast on chris <laughs> yeah let's just go over golden gate's commentary maybe because I, I don't think i disagree with golden gate he's he's a scholar and so i don't think he's an open theist but he sounds very open theistic when he's 
dealing with the text because that's who that's who wrote these texts. All these people are open theists. None of them had a classical definition of God in mind when they're writing. <clears throat> and so if anyone's going to do scholarly due diligence, that's how they're going to describe these texts in question. And so Golden Gate is very good in that regard. But all right, so we'll end there. I think we've we've gone long enough. David says only witches can claim to appear in the future. There are there are interesting uh, examples of future predictions in the Bible, like the coming of Josiah was prophesied. The death of Saul and his kids were prophesied in in some fashion by the witch of Endor, which was being used as a medium by Samuel, who presumably got his information from God. So it's like like these loose future events seem to be in their minds. But uh, yeah, maybe, maybe witches claim to appear into the future. I, I don't think anyone else appears into the future. I don't think it's a biblical concept to appear into the future. But there are future predictions. But we'll end there. Any closing comments, Craig? Well, we, we know we're not in the last times because in the last times we all get our perfect bodies and then everybody looks like me. <laughs> that is that is true. So I, I was thinking just today, I was thinking like, I, I thank God that I'm over six foot tall with any physical imperfections that I have. I wouldn't, if like, if I was rolling character creating myself, I would, I would, take any other defects to try to get over that six foot tall and so that's <laughs> that's what the girl the girls like the over six foot tall guys and so uh, anything else can be overlooked and so i wouldn't re-roll my stats in other words so maybe there's something to preterism i don't know <laughs> <laughs> all right we'll end there any comments questions put that down below or start a thread on the god is open facebook page thank you for listening <laughs>